This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 20th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. American courts have long had trouble reconciling the freedom of religion and drug use, but recent decades indicate that courts, as they should, defer more readily to religious groups that achieve better faith through chemistry. Eric Sterling is executive director of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. We talked about the tension between free exercise of religion and the drug war last month. In the mid-'80s, there became a fear of what were known as the designer drugs. And DEA said, we need the authority to ban substances on a sped-up basis. Regardless, we have to... We can't simply comply with the requirements of the eightfold factors of the Controlled Substances Act. Give us this emergency scheduling authority. And so I was involved in giving con- in writing the legislation that DA wanted then in '84. Uh, they also were concerned about drugs that had not yet been discovered. Can we ban substances? that are not yet defined, that it's, it's, it's a hassle for us to at all try to ban a substance using any scientific basis, any evidence basis. Let's ban drugs on a conceptual basis. And so I was involved in that conflict. Um, and part of the question was what, you know, what kinds of standards you would, you would create. Does the drug have to both mimic some harmful effects of Schedule I drugs? Does it have to be chemically similar in some way or are the alternatives uh, sufficient? And so we were involved in that kind of battle as well. And so when the – what became known as the analog law passed in the 86 legislation – DEA then, instead of using it on some undiscovered drug, immediately then tried to apply it to MDMA, which – and what they did was they abandoned what had been an effort to schedule MDMA in Schedule Three. They had published in the Federal Register a desire to put it in Schedule One. There was a petition and there were hearings going on to, to – classify it in Schedule 3 and they were able to use legislation that wasn't designed for that to to do that. So that's one sort of thing that I was involved in in the the mid-80s. It certainly was disturbing to see how sort of the, the concept of due process that we're going to give the public very clear idea of what's a prohibited and what's not would be thrown out in the drug area. We'll simply say any compound that might mimic the effects of something in in the control, you know, in the Schedule One can be banned. Well, any stimulant, any depressant, any hallucinogen. This was a very this was very striking to me and to others, but. It was at a moment when the politics were all around, you know, the hysterical fear of anything characterized as a drug. So that was one sort of thing that I was involved in. Um, in the 90s, uh, after the Supreme Court decision in Oregon versus Smith, which was a free exercise of religion case involving a man 
who was in recovery from a drug addiction, worked in a treatment program, but you was a member of the Native American Church of North America and used peyote. And and just just to be clear, peyote at least as a as a reputational matter, uh, you can either drink alcohol or you can use peyote, but they don't mix. That's by reputation. That's what I understand. Um, I know that many people who were alcoholics found that their use of peyote was part of their recovery lifestyle in recovering a kind of cultural authenticity when they were Native Americans. Um, I can't speak so much about the connection with alcohol. What I can speak about is the ancient use of peyote and how in 1620 the Spanish Inquisition called it diabolical and began to torture people who used peyote, the, the, the native people who used it, not because it was, quote, a drug of abuse, but because, of course, it was a spiritual tool that was counter to that of the church, that all of the laws that have been passed against peyote uh, in the United States were laws you know, there, there was no abuse problem. It wasn't used recreationally. It was used in worship and this was a part of a religious persecution of Native Americans as part of the extermination of their culture. There, there began to be reform in this area um, and the federal government moved more quickly than the states did. So a man lost his job because he was not, quote, drug-free. This is uh, Smith in Oregon. And the Supreme Court, in his case, threw out free exercise of religion uh, protections for everyone because they argued that the laws of general applicability, such as the drug laws, would, would apply here and that, and that there couldn't be uh, um, special exceptions made. I was then involved in hosting in my office the something known as the Native American Religious Freedom Project and we had peyote worship inside the Beltway at Greenbelt Park protected by the National Park Service as part of an effort to help educate the Congress and policymakers about the religious use of peyote. And in 1994, there was then a, an act of Congress that extended protection vis-a-vis uh, -vis state law for the use of peyote by members of – by Indians who are members of this church. It is unfortunately a kind of establishment of religion because um, it does not apply to anyone who's not a Native American, who's a, not a member of this church. Um, so the clear spiritual experience that people have using peyote in this church is unavailable to the rest of us. You know, any of us want to become Muslim or Baha'i or Buddhist or whatever, there's no racial test, there's no barrier to our free exercise of religion in this area. And we see this kind of persecution taking place with cannabis as well where the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church, the churches that use cannabis in their worship uh, are not given religious protection here in the United States either.
Uh, and why is that? I mean, the United States passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which has been used to allow for, uh, for example, uh, ayahuasca was one of the cases that was uh, allowed to continue. That process yes. was allowed to continue under RFRA passed in the mid-90s. But why would this other church not be able to uh, take the same protection? The ayahuasca case, uh, the Unio de Vegetal uh, from Brazil, had a much more established kind of church structure. It also had a patron who was prepared to finance the, not only the church but to finance the legal defense. He hired one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in the country, Nancy Hollander from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to represent him at trial in the Tenth Circuit and then before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the cases that I've been aware of in, uh, involving cannabis and, and uh, Rastafarian are pro se cases, public defender cases. They haven't gotten the same attention. The question in part has to go, is it a commandment of the faith that you use this cannabis versus or you know or is it simply a practice i mean there's there is this funny um, distinction drawing that takes place in in this area that the court insists upon so that um, a tool for one's spiritual insight um can be persecuted because it's not a requirement in some sense that one do this. I think that the other piece of it is that there wasn't a demonstrated ayahuasca, uh, quote, problem. We do have cannabis abuse problems in the country. We are aware that there are people who do become addicted to it. Perhaps 9 percent of heavy users become addicted at some point in their life. Um, Many of us may know people who have had trouble quitting their marijuana use. The widespread character of marijuana works against its use for spiritual purposes um, as far as I think the courts go and as far as the politics of the courts go. You would hope that courts would simply look at you know, the government's right to regulate and using the constitution as a guide would say, well, we can't regulate in this area or – that we can regulate in this area. You're saying it's a lot more complicated and uh, political than that. Well, unfortunately, that's the truth. Courts are political institutions and the recognition of rights and even due process gets influenced by political considerations. Um, you can – you know, an, an example would be the – Supreme Court's ruling in the medical cannabis case that uh, Angel Rach and Diane Monson brought. Uh, this is the California case where two women sued the attorney general saying our legal medical cannabis use in California where the cannabis is given to us and doesn't cross any state lines isn't in interstate commerce. It isn't commerce. And therefore, it's outside the jurisdiction of the DEA. It's outside the power of Congress to control. 
They lost in the district court, but the Ninth Circuit said, you know, looking at some precedents of the Supreme Court, the, the, this, is, might, this might win. And so in a two-to-one decision, the Ninth Circuit upheld their right. And when it went to the Supreme Court, they, they made that argument. Our, our use of cannabis is outside of interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court affirmed a 1940 New Deal piece, uh, Wickard versus Filburn, a famous case involving the growing of wheat and whether or not it could be reserved for, for personal use or not. And the court, six to three, upheld the, the, the reach of the Commerce Clause in what seems to be clearly outside the federal jurisdiction, saying, well, even this intrastate activity affects interstate commerce. If, if everybody who in California who was a medical cannabis user used only California marijuana, this would affect the interstate commerce in illegal marijuana or the international commerce in illegal marijuana. And because of that effect, Congress has the power to regulate it. It's a, quite a bootstrapping argument to expand the federal power. Even when you know that in both Wickard and Raich, we're talking about non-interstate, non-commerce. Right. And, right. Uh, and if we understand the Commerce Clause in its sort of original meaning, we understand it to, me, to make commerce regular, mm -hmm. which was essentially to prevent states from erecting trade barriers by giving the federal government uh, that authority to make commerce regular. But here they're talking about a drug in which there shouldn't be any commerce at all as far as they're concerned. It, it, was, a, it was a fascinating window into the politics of this. Scalia, by the way, went the wrong way from, from our perspective. Uh, the people who defended – the justices who defended uh, Raich and, and Monson were Rehnquist, O'Connor and Justice Thomas. You know, Thomas in his dissent, you know, said, you know, under the government's argument here, any church supper could be regulated because people bringing in the food for the church supper are not patronizing, you know, uh, you know, church's fried chicken or, you know, they're, 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 there is an effect upon commerce anytime somebody brings somebody some food that they made themselves. And it's a, it's a, a powerful illustration of how far in the drug area we will do somersaults to avoid the plain implications of what the Constitution requires. So it, with respect to religious freedom and uh, drug use, has anything changed really since the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the, in the mid-90s? Is there a broadening of understanding beyond uh, the use of a drug as a, as a mandate of your faith, uh, expanding that beyond to, well, this faith does use this in some rituals and it is used for spiritual insight but it is not mandatory. To my knowledge, there have not been appellate rulings that have gone that far yet. They've, they've, they've followed the precedents that – but I, I have to confess I'm not, a, I'm not sufficiently on top of this to give you an authoritative answer. We're at a, a national crossroads in terms of drug policy. We can see you know, the courts and the judicial branch moving away from heavy emphasis on enforcement with the actions of the Sentencing Commission and the, 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 the roles that judges want to take. We see in the executive branch with a support for 
sterile syringe exchange and harm reduction, that um, there's a recognition that drug users' lives really matter as opposed to being insignificant. Sterile syringe exchange is a government recognition that injecting drug users will behave in ways to protect themselves, that they have the capacity to control their behavior to protect themselves. So it's a very important statement about the autonomy and the self-care that drug users have. So Congress you know, now has been supporting that. Congress supported sentencing reform in the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010. Congress supported marijuana reform in various riders to the appropriations bills after Colorado, Washington, and so forth. So we're seeing at all three branches of government motion in the right direction for drug policy reform. And then we have the election of President Trump and the confirmation of Attorney General Sessions. And Sessions' rhetoric, Sessions was an assistant federal prosecutor beginning in 1975 and then from 1981 to 1993 was the U.S. attorney in, in Alabama, very harsh sentencer. You know, some of his cases were very famous cases. Clarence Aaron, a college student who got three life sentences for uh, his role, you know, transporting cocaine uh, to a, a Mobile, Alabama group or Dorothy Gaines and these are, you know, whose you know, minor case was dismissed in, in Alabama's state courts and prosecuted in federal courts. She got more than 20 years. Those were both cases that – I mean in Dorothy Gaines' case, President Bill Clinton commuted her sentence before he left office and Clarence Aaron had his life sentence commuted by uh, President Obama. So Sessions, Sessions really wants to bring back the worst kinds of approaches. And so when we have even the president's commission led by Governor Christie calling for uh, naloxone to save the lives of drug users, calling for Good Samaritan 911 laws to say we're going to give exemptions from prosecution to drug users who seek medical assistance. Um, we're seeing within the administration itself a profound conflict between the direction we've been going in and the desire to return us in another direction. We're seeing um, in the drug policy reform movement transition, a new executive director at the Drug Policy Alliance, Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno. Um, we're seeing uh, in Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapters uh, emerging almost spontaneously now in 27 countries around the world. We have chapters you know, th you know, throughout Africa and Asia as well as Latin America and Europe. These are very significant signs uh, that the old order is breaking down, not merely in the United States, not merely in California or Colorado. And um, it simply says that those of us who are concerned about this have to stay uh, focused and politically active in order to make sure that we continue going in the correct direction and not go backward. Eric Sterling is the executive director of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 